Good morning, Cornerstone. Would you stand with us as we worship together?
God's praises this morning, all right? Awesome. Well, this next song we're going to sing, the chorus says, um, ride in on our praise. And I just was thinking about this morning as we were practicing that sometimes we can forget that when we worship, heaven literally comes to earth. And I think that that's such an important thing to remember is that when we worship, we get to pray and we get to encounter God's presence. And he sends his spirit to meet with us, to refresh us, to bring us encouragement and joy. So let's just think about that as we sing this morning. Yeah. 
just pray that we would remember that today and every day, Lord, that you sent your son to make a place for us, God. And we never have to worry about where our identity is, God, because you said it's in you. We love you so much. It's in your son's name that we pray. seated. Good morning. Man, it's good, good to see you all here today. Got a few announcements and we're going to jump right into the sermon. We'll have some more worship after the sermon, after communion. So first of all, I'm Tony. I'm the pastor here. And if you're visiting, we thank you for coming and we're thrilled you're here. We would ask if you don't mind, there's a little a white card in the seat back in front of you. Fill that out. Um, and, and drop it in the offering box. Love to check up on you this week and see what we can do for you. Um, so also, let me give you an update on me. Um, six weeks ago, I had um, what's, what's called a radical prostateectomy because of cancer. And I went to my six-week checkup on Tuesday, and they did a PSA, and it came back as 0.1, which is which is technically cancer-free. cancer, cancer free. So I'll have to have one of those every 30, 90 days. And so we'll just keep praying towards that end. And I want to thank you for your prayers. But I also want to encourage you, men. Um, this is not my sermon, but it's a little sermonette. <laughs> In my studies of this, I learned that prostate cancer is the most common cancer men get by far. It is highly curable, but it's also the number one cancer men die from. Because men don't deal with it. So men, deal with it. There you go. We have some great things coming up in the next couple months. One of them this week is Vacation Bible School. And Jessica and her team have been working hard. They've got a great program for our kids coming up. And so it starts Tuesday through Friday. And up there you see it's 8.30 in the morning till noon. You can go on our website and sign up, both sign your kids up to come, and I'm more than certain she could use more volunteers. She's got, she's got over 20 ladies and men to help her, but never turn down volunteers. Because that, that some can come on Tuesday, some can come Wednesday, Thursday, so there's always room for more help. Things, if you want to be with the kids, leading them, or if you want to be in the background, setting things up. Lots of opportunity this week to serve the Lord by loving our kids. So, BBS this week. Then, two Sundays from today is our baptism. We're going to have a class. So if you want to get baptized and you've never been baptized, there's a sign-up sheet out on the counter out there to the left side of the foyer when you go out. We'll have a class the previous Monday night on what baptism is. And, and so here's the point of the class. The class is to talk to you about what this church believes about baptism. And maybe, maybe you aren't certain you should get baptized. Well, come to the class and hear more about it, and you can make a decision after that. So we want people to be completely informed what we do here in baptism. So baptism Sunday will be at Burnt Cedar Beach. I just heard, though, that the water at Burnt Cedar is way out. Have you been there and seen that? We're going to have a live service there. We'll have all the band there. And so we'll be on the peninsula. We'll figure out how to get in the water. We may just throw you off the peninsula. <laughs> And um, I don't know yet, but we'll figure it out. So, but, so that's two weeks from today, the baptism, 10 o'clock at Burnt Cedar, class the Monday before. If you're interested, sign up. Then two save the dates. There's no slide for this. Two save the dates. Um, September 18th is our Incline Fest. 
We did it two years ago. Basically, we turned the whole parking lot, the church property, into a massive fun fest for kids and their families. We had 300 people come two years ago. And it's simply a way to bless our community. It's what it is. Simply a way to give back to our community. So put it on your calendars. You'll be hearing more about that September 18th. The following Saturday, September 25th, we're bringing in Sean McDowell. And Sean McDowell is a a, a scholar, his father, um, Josh McDowell. Excellent at what's called apologetics. Apologetics, I mentioned last week, and some people said, what's that? Apologetics is not apologizing for anything. Apologetics is giving a defense of why you follow Jesus. When someone asks you, why do you believe in this crazy stuff called Christianity and a a God that died and rose again? Well, apologetics is explaining your faith to someone who doesn't understand it. And you'll learn from Sean McDowell, who's brilliant at that. There'll be an all-day seminar on Saturday. It will, there will be a fee for it, since you'll hear about that coming up. So save those two dates, the 18th and 25th. You with me? Now what I want you to do, to respect each other in this COVID time, but greet each other. We have a lot of visitors here. Stand up and greet each other and um, um, respect space and all that. But find someone you don't know and say hello. And we'll come back in a moment. Go ahead and grab a seat. Let's go ahead and grab a seat. Let's grab a seat. Okay, don't grab a seat. Good morning. What did I say? Zero, zero point zero. As we get started, I was asked before the service um, for us to pray for what's going on in Afghanistan, and I want to do that. I one of my I get so focused on things that I, um, um, 
I forget everything else. So, so um, thank you for reminding me about this. Father, we thank you for the blessings we have, that we get to wake up in this town, this state, this country, and have um, relative safety. And we praise you for that. Help us never forget the blessings we have and that you're the provider of them. So, Father, as the Lord over all the nations, we ask for you to intervene in Afghanistan for the people there. Father, for the millions and millions of people now who are being oppressed. And I don't understand all the politics and all that, Father, but for the evil people coming in to control and destroy, we ask, Father, that you stop them. You raised, even raising Afghanistan people up to do that, whatever is necessary, Father. But we pray that you intervene. And the people that know you there, um, we ask, Lord, that you empower them to be your witnesses and to protect them from the evil one. Father, I don't know the solution to this. I don't know that anybody knows the solution to this. Um, but we just ask for you, the only person, only God, the one God who truly has the solution. So, Father, that's our prayer to you this morning. Intervene. And we also pray as the fires in the west rage, Lord, protect our firefighters. And again, bring rain. Bring lots of it, Father, without lightning. So, thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Keep our eyes open to all of them. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen. One of you guys emailed me a thing to pray Psalm 83 last week, every day. I didn't pray it every day. But I, um, and Psalm 83 is what's called an imprecatory psalm, where you pray against your enemies. And I've always struggled with imprecatory psalms of the Old Testament, where they're based upon the promise to Abraham. And I'm off sermon totally here. The promise to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Well, David regularly prayed blessed cursings on his enemies in light of that belief. New Testament, Jesus says, love your enemy. But the way the world's going now, not, not, not to change my theology, I'm wondering what is the role of the imprecatory Psalms where we call upon God to take out evil people? I, I, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't fully understand it. Something for you to put your mind to. And um, as we, the people of God, who are to love our enemies, but also want to stop evil, how do we pray against that? I, I'm figuring it out. Just, just a little caveat there. This morning, we were finishing up, coming to the end of the series in Romans. We've been here for 13 months. We're in chapter 15 today. We will, this week and next week, we will wrap it up. The ushers have Bibles. If you don't have one, raise your hand. They'll bring you a Bible. We're in Romans chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 7. So what I want to do, though, is talk about two of Paul's passions. As he wraps this letter up, he gets very personal, and he, gets, he reveals his passions. And so I want to talk about two of his passions. One is preaching the gospel, and one is helping the poor. And then we're going to, at the end of the message, talk about his view of prayer and, and how it plays out in, in his life. But I want to talk about these two passions, but first... The first passion is preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. That's the first thing Paul's passionate about, and it comes out in the theme of the book of Romans. So on the screen, you don't got to turn there now. On the screen, I'm going to take you to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, which is the theme for the book of Romans. Then we'll jump into chapter 15. This is what Paul says. He starts the book off with this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. 
For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we've seen this played out, how, how us in our sin, we turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, and, and he takes our sin and we get his righteousness. The righteousness of God is revealed in this gospel, not just revealed, but imparted to us because of what Christ has done and we're trusting him. There's the gospel, Jew or Gentile, meaning all of humanity. Every time Paul went into a town in his preaching ministry, every time he went to a town, that he went into the synagogue first, to the Jew first. Then he went to the Gentiles. Often he was run out of town within days, weeks. Went to the next town, went to the synagogue first, to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles. He has a passion for his own people to believe and a passion for all the world to believe. See, if you're not Jewish, in biblical terminology, you are Gentile. So a few of you in this room I know have Jewish heritage. The rest of us are Gentiles. So with that, his first passion is preaching the gospels to Jews and Gentiles. I want to look at chapter 15 and read 7 to 13 and show here as he finishes the book, he comes back to the same theme and quotes lots of Old Testament passages to support it. So, therefore, verse 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That was our last week's message. We finished on that verse, that verse last week. Welcome or accept one another. All the differences we have in strong Christians, weak Christians, we're going to accept each other. Let's stop criticizing and, and manipulating each other. Welcome each other. So in light of that, Paul says this, for, why do we welcome one another? For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So why did Jesus become human? Why, did he, why in the incarnation? First he came to show the Jews God's still got a plan. He's working it. He's made promises to your fathers and he's fulfilling it right now in me. And, verse 9, Christ came in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Now he goes in through several Old Testament passages showing it was always God's plan to bring the Gentiles into faith. It was always God's plan. He quotes from Deuteronomy. He quotes from the Psalms. He quotes from Isaiah. I'm just going to run through these quotes. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. By the way, he's telling us to do that. Rejoice, O the people of Cornerstone Church. Rejoice in him with the Jewish people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. He finishes that, may the Lord or the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. As I said, it was always God's plan to take the gospel to the Gentiles. But God chose the Jewish people to be his instruments to do that. The original intent for God choosing Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Jacob's 12 sons, is to bless this nation beyond their means. So the whole world will go, I want to know about Israel's God. They were supposed to be the light to the nations. And different times in history they did okay, different times in history they did not okay. But in the end, Christ comes from Israel to bring these blessings. And so Paul, being the apostle to the Gentiles, takes this gospel out. 
to set up for the next paragraph, I'm going to drop down to verse 18. Paul was chosen as an apostle to preach to the Gentiles. He even says at one point, Peter is the apostle to the Jews, I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. He loved his own people, Paul did. Paul loved his people. But his primary mission was to let the Gentiles know God's love for them, expressed through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So in light of that, let's drop down to verse 18. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. So all that Paul did as he preached and all the things, the actions he did were for one reason, to bring the Gentiles to faith. Verse 19, he did this by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Iliaricum, if you say that right, and whoever says it first, that's how you say it. So this is Jerusalem's where it started. If you know your geography, from Jerusalem you go through, and you go through Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, you cross over into Greece. Iliaricum is to the northwest of Greece. So, so that would be the extent of where Paul preached by the time he wrote this letter. From Jerusalem all the way to the northern tip of Greece, he's brought the gospel. Now, did he take the gospel to every town? No. Paul took it to the major centers. Paul was a great strategist. He would take the gospel to the cities, and then when he would establish a church there, often he'd be chased out of town. Um, and, and then, but he would establish a church, then the church was to carry on the mission to the surrounding community. So here's what we're going to do. From a perspective of, of um, this passage, an idea of application of Paul's passion to preach to Jews and Gentiles, I'm not going to do a lot of application today because in about three, four weeks, we're going to revisit this topic over what God is calling this church to do. So we're going to come back to this. But let's finish the paragraph here. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Jesus. Thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes the passage in Isaiah 52, 53 about the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. There's Paul's passion to get the gospel to those who have never heard or seen God's blessings. There's his passion. I want you to be thinking about how passionate you are. Like I said, we're going to visit that in about three, four weeks once again. I want to go to this next one now. I know I'm leaving that one hanging, but we'll come back. The second passion was helping the poor. I'm going to drop down to chapter 15, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. Okay, so it's at, um, you know, seven, eight hundred miles away as the crow flies to Rome, where Paul's writing a letter. His, his desire is to get to Rome, and when he gets to Rome, he wants to go to Spain, where no one's preached the gospel before. So Spain is further west. In fact, Spain was kind of the end of the known world. It was the end of the Roman Empire to the west. So Paul wanted to get to the edge of the Roman Empire and preach the gospel when no one had preached before. So that's our context here. But now, verse 23, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in the passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. So he's in Corinth, 
To the west is Rome, but he's going back east now to Jerusalem. Why? Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contributions for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have been delivered to them and have delivered to them what was collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So here's what's going on. Paul's out traveling. He loves his people. All you got to do is read Romans 9, 10, 11 to see Paul's love for his people. And he wants to see him come to faith. He even says at one point, I would be accursed. I would go to hell if I knew all my brethren could know Jesus. He would give up his eternal life for his brothers and sisters in Judaism to know Jesus. That's how passionate Paul was. And so he's out preaching, and he hears there's a famine in Jerusalem. A famine that is, that is horrific, evidently, and people have no food to eat. It's already an arid area, but now the famine has taken out the crops, and they have no food. So Paul is taking a collection as each goes to each church to take back to the Jerusalem church so they can buy food. And he says the churches of Macedonia and the churches of Achaia. Macedonia, Achaia, I want you to think of those as like um, our counties or our states. In Macedonia is the towns of Philippi and Thessalonica. In Achaia is the town of Corinth. So Paul went to those communities as he's preaching the gospel, and he goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile, and he tells them about a need in Jerusalem, and he takes an offering. And he's collected this offering, and now he's heading back to Jerusalem to give it to the Jerusalem church so they can buy food. So you with me on this? And Paul, so let me read the text where this takes place. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 through 5. And there's principles here about giving that I want to highlight to us. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, Philippi and Thessalonica being the chief ones. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, then by the will of God to us. Here's what's going on. So Paul brings this need to these new Christians. These people have been, been Christians for weeks. And he brings this need of the Jerusalem church has no food. Now it mentions here that the Philippian church was poor too. And they were being persecuted. And later in this passage he says, we want you to give according to what you have, not according to what you don't have. And what the Philippians did was gave beyond their means. They gave out of their need, not out of their abundance. The, the, the expectation on a Christian is give according to what you have. Don't make promises you can't keep. The Philippians evidently chose to do without and gave beyond their means so that the Jerusalem church can have something. And it blows Paul away. And then he mentions in verse 9, listen to these words, and we can see how the Philippian believers were, were simply following the example of their Lord. 1 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, 
How was he rich? How was Jesus rich? Talking about lands and dollars? Philippians 2. He existed in the form of God. Angels worshipped him. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by you, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Nothing to do with money. It has to do with from sin to holiness. Sin is the poverty, holiness is the riches. Jesus started in holiness, took on our sin, became poor, so that he could give us the wealth, his holiness. So that's what Jesus did for me. How could I not do that for my brothers and sisters that have nothing? I will sacrifice so they can have something to eat. That's the Philippians attitude. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote to them first, he instructs them to take an offering. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also do. Galatia is Turkey today. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Paul's not going, hey, I'll take the money and I'll I'll carry it. Paul never wants to be accused of taking money. So he says, I'll send some of your own representatives to take it. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me, which is what happened. So what's the application here? Here's the application. The poor are at the heart of our God. All through Scripture, all through Scripture. In the Old Testament, when Paul lays down, excuse me, when God lays down the law through Moses, there was provisions throughout the whole law of how we were to treat the poor among us. Remember, this is an agrarian society primarily. And so when you had your fields of grain or or grapes, whatever you grew, you were to leave the corners unharvested so the poor could come through and get food to eat. The story of Ruth, that's how Ruth met Boaz. She's a foreigner who comes in and goes to Boaz's fields to glean because she had nothing to eat. And it's a beautiful story of redemption. So the image here is God had set up Israel to help the poor. Often, once every three years, once every five years, I forget, there was an extra tithe Israel had to give. It was one-tenth of their produce was given to the priests so the priests could feed the poor. And you see, the Israel ignored this for many years. It was part of God coming against them when he sent them to Babylon. Not only their idolatry, but he says, you have ignored the poor. So, people of North Lake Tahoe, what do we do with this? You know, when we drive around our streets, there's not a whole lot of poor among us. But they're here. I don't always have eyes to see. But what's the application to us? What's God calling us to do with the abundance we have? As he tells the Corinthians, put aside and store up as you may prosper. Well, I know I've prospered. Let me back up. There's a lot of texts in the Bible in the New Testament about giving. Lots of them. There's a couple about giving to the people who teach you, your church. There's an implication, support missionaries. You see the Philippians supported Paul as a missionary. But you know the majority of passages that talk about giving is about giving to the poor. The overwhelming amount of passages in the New Testament that talk about giving is about giving to the poor. 
And often what pastors will say is, you know what, just give to the church, we'll, we'll handle the poor. You don't worry about it. let us take care of your giving. Well, I thank you for your generosity to this church. I'm employed full time. And we have five other people here who are employed. And it's, it's, a, it's an incredible blessing that we get to spend our days ministering on behalf of you and the, and the people of North Tahoe. But I want to say to you that the poor, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, everyone in this room who says, I follow Jesus, needs to ask the question, God, what do you want me personally to do for the poor and not take it through my church? That I personally get involved with the poor. There are endless organizations out there that serve the poor and good ones. We have one, Crisis Aid for Africa. And, and Barry, where are you, Barry? Barry's not in here. He's out in the foyer. He's our usher. Barry runs the missions committee. We both just got a letter from our, the, the leader of Crisis Aid for Africa. And he said he just received the highest award for financial accountability in Christian ministries. Everything they get, they get on to the poor. Obviously, there's overhead. Um, so we support people like that. There's other organizations out there. I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to, to do some research. Learn more about the poor in your community, in North Tahoe. The Incline Village, not so many. Kings Beach, maybe some more. Do some research. See, here's what's not going to go on that day of judgment. Whatever that looks like, we stand before God and we give an account for all the deeds we did in the body. That's what it says. What's, what, what he's not going to say is, so what was the poor? He goes, well, I, I, don't, I didn't see any ever, God. That's not going to fly that day. Because he's put it in his word and hopefully in our heart that we can have an incredible impact on the poor in our community and around the world. But do we have the heart for it? Um, my heart kind of goes like this, you know. Now, now, let's not be foolish. Second Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter 5 talks to the lazy man who won't work. It says, the man will not work, neither let him eat. We're not talking to giving money to irresponsible people. We're talking about taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. So I, I, was, I would hope, and, and we'll see in a few weeks, the passion of preaching to the lost becomes ours. We're coming back to that in a few weeks. The passion of taking care of the poor that Paul has, we need to make it ours. This isn't just for apostles. This is for everybody who calls Christ the Lord. He was rich and became poor so that we could become rich. Let's be instruments in his hands to go to the poor to alleviate their poverty and they can become rich in Christ. All right. Now, those are the two passions, preaching the gospel and taking care of the poor. But now I want to look at a caveat on prayer and God's will. This is something I wasn't planning on doing until I was studying this week, and I, I came across verses 30 to 33. And just my mind started getting flooded with the book of Acts. So I'm kind of a shift here now, and I want you to stay with me. What I want to do is talk about a caveat on prayer and God's will and two principles. God answers our prayers in unique ways. Can I get an amen there? Amen. Second principle... Our plans are not always God's plans. There's a joke out there that says, you want to hear God laugh? Tell him your plans. So keep those two things in mind. God answers our prayers in unique ways, and our plans are not always God's plans. So Romans 15, 18, Romans 15, 28 to 33. I'm going to back up to 28. 
When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, once I get to Jerusalem, when that takes place and I give the money, I will leave for Spain by way of you. Now, they didn't get on airplanes. We're talking months to get from Jerusalem to Rome and then from Rome to Spain. So Paul said, I will come by you and you can help me on my way. So i.e., finance my trip. I'll, take, I'll pass the plate. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Keep that in mind. When I finally get to you, Rome, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. We'll come back to that phrase. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Strive together. The word strive there is it, it actually it's, um, comes from a word, we get our word agonize from it. It's the idea of, it's used in context of wrestling. When you wrestle with someone, you're striving with them, you're fighting them. So this is this concept of us coming together in intense prayer, together. Paul, Paul says, strive together, agonize together, wrestle with me and God on this. And here's what I'm asking you to ask God. And so, so this is something for me, if you know me well, in this room, those who know me well know that, um, so I have some strengths and I have some weaknesses as I walk with God. And a consistent intercessory prayer life always needs to be worked on in my life. So when I read this, strive together with me in prayer. I need to figure what that's about. That I may be, here's his prayer request, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, remember he's heading to Jerusalem, delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, my offering that I bring. So first, when I get there, the unbelievers leave me alone. Secondly, when I get there, the believers accept the gift that I'm bringing. So that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So the prayer request delivered from unbelievers in Judea. This is what he wants to strive together. Strive in prayer with me that the unbelievers leave me alone. I get in, give the offering. It's acceptable to the saints there. And then I get out and get to you and on to Spain. So this is like, this is our prayer request. This is my prayer request. God, I have this plan. And this plan, the best way to do it is from here, a straight line to the completion of my plan. And God, I know you have the power to do it. So God, that's my, and would you wrestle with me as I ask God to make my life easy to get to my goal? That was kind of funny. I'm not, I'm not suggesting Paul was naive or presumptuous. But what he's saying here is I want to get in, get out, get to you, get to Spain, preach the gospel where no one's ever heard it before. That's his passion. So are you with me on the storyline so far? Well, imagine that straight line. God answers prayer in unique ways. It wasn't a straight line for Paul. It was like this. A backwards took him five years before he was freed to go to Spain. So let me tell you that story from the book of Acts. Remember Paul says here that I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Well, Paul had an expectation what that looked like. And if you're married today, you know, in any relationship we have, marriage knows this best. If you're married, 
you know that often dissatisfaction in your marriage is because of unmet expectations. Okay? I got married, I expected this and got that. So unmet expectations always put a strain on relationships. No different with us and God. Paul had an expectation. Get in, get out, get to Spain. So here's what happens. He gets to Jerusalem, and when he arrives, there's a lot of chatter. Paul, the former Pharisees in town, and he's out preaching the gospel to Gentiles, telling them not to obey the law. So James, the leader of the Jerusalem church and the other apostles there, said, you know what? Here's what you need to do. In order to show the people that you're not against the law of Moses, you're, not, you're for Jews, we want you to take these four young men, pay the, pay the fee for their vow, and you all go make a vow together. And it was seven days. They had to shave their heads. It was probably a Nazarite vow is probably what it was. And make a vow. So he does that. But towards the end of that seven days, he's in the temple. And some Jews from Asia, this is all recorded from Acts 21 to 28. Some Jews from Asia see him. Now, these would be some of the same Jews that when he was preaching in their city, he went to their synagogue first. And guess what they did? They chased him out. They beat him up, threw him out. He went to the next town. Guess what happened there? Went to the synagogue first. What did they do? They beat him up and chased him out. Why? Why? Because Paul comes in to say, I want to tell you about your Messiah, the one you've been waiting for forever. His name is Jesus Christ, and he was crucified and died and rose again. And as soon as they hear that, they say, you're nuts. You get out of here. Paul, the heart of the gospel is the resurrection. And every time Paul preaches it, he's kicked out. So Jews from Asia see him, and they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. You see, Paul's traveling with Gentiles. They were with him, but he never brought them into the temple. In the temple courts, a Gentile can only go so far. Women can only go so far. Gentiles can only go so far. Then it was Jewish men could go all the way in. And Paul never violated that, but they accused him of it. So they mob him, they grab him, they drag him out, and they're beating him. So much for a smooth interest in getting out. So his prayer request that I would be delivered from the unbelievers in Jerusalem was not answered. As they're beating him, because you see, Jews could not carry out the death penalty. The Romans had taken the death penalty away from the Jewish people, except for one thing they could do. If someone crossed the line of a Gentile crossing the line of the temple, the Jews could carry it out. They say, Paul brought someone in, we're going to kill him. So in the midst of this mob beating up Paul, the Romans come and break it up. They break it up, they handcuff Paul, they're taking him off, and Paul says, stop, stop, I want to talk to my people. Paul loves these people. So if someone was beating you up for what you believe, would you want to stop and tell them about the love of Jesus? I hope I would. I'm not so sure I would. Paul says, let me talk to them. So Paul speaks to them in Hebrew. See, they think he's a Greek Jew that doesn't speak Hebrew. He speaks to them in Hebrew, and it quiets the whole crowd down. And guess what he does? He gives his testimony. He gives his testament how he used to persecute the church and, and would beat the church Christians up and put them in jail and try and extinguish this thing called the way. But then Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, knocked him off his horse, his bright light, and opened his eyes to the beauty of their Savior. And I want to tell you about this guy. And, and so he gets to the resurrection. Guess what? Actually, he gets to what Jesus says, and Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles. But what's he being accused of? Bringing Gentiles into the temple. 
So in his testimony, he's being sent to the Gentiles. They freak again. So the soldiers take him in, and they're going to flog him. Flogging is what happened to Jesus the night he was betrayed. It's a whip with bone and metal in it, and it's brutal. So we'll get the truth out of you, Paul. We'll beat the tar out of you. And just when they're getting ready to flog him, Paul says, is it legal to flog a Roman citizen? Brilliant on Paul's part. He's already been beat up once. Finally, he's like, I've got to tell people they can't do this to me. I'm a citizen. So Paul, this moves on. I'm taking too long here. Paul is put in jail until the Jewish leaders can come before the magistrates to find out what's going on. And in that time, 40 men take a vow. They will not eat or drink a thing until they've killed Paul. And so they are setting up a plan where the Roman soldiers will take Paul to uh, uh, the Sanhedrin to be put on trial. And when he's on the way, these 40 will attack the soldiers and kill Paul. Well, Paul's nephew finds out about it and tells the Roman soldiers. This is a great story. Read Acts 21 to 28. Tells the Roman soldiers. So the Romans, the Roman guards, take over 400 soldiers in the middle of the night to avoid this attack and take him up the coast to Caesarea and make the Jews come there and not bring in Paul to them to, to bring their charges. Paul was there for two years in jail waiting for these charges to take place. And there's a governor named Festus. And Festus wants to hear the story of Paul. So guess what happens? Paul's in jail. The governor, this would be the one that used to be Pilate, now it's Festus, comes and says, what's going on, Paul? Tell me what's going on. Guess what Paul does? He has his testimony, tells him about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, as it moves on, eventually now King Agrippa comes. King Agrippa is the nephew of King Herod during Jesus' story. The great-grandson of King Herod when Jesus was born and killed all the babies. So this is the Herod line of kings in Israel. And Agrippa wants to hear about it. Guess what Paul does? Preaches the gospel to King Herod. And at the end of it, when he talks about the resurrection from the dead, Festus says, Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. You actually believe in the resurrection? So... Paul realizes at this point, is, is there's, some more, there's some more interchange of governors taken over from Felix to Festus. I probably got those messed up there. And Paul realizes he's being potentially railroaded. So he appeals to Caesar. He's a Roman citizen. If he feels there's injustice, he can appeal to the highest court. It's like us going through the process and eventually getting to the Supreme Court. I appeal to Caesar. Once he says that, all the proceedings stop. Paul now is sent to Rome. They put him on a ship, and winter's coming. He even says to them, this is a bad time to travel. But the captain says, oh, don't worry about it. We can do it. Guess what happens? Major shipwreck. So the story goes on. Major shipwreck. They end up having to, the ship breaks up. They have to be in planks and, and ride them into the, this, this unnamed island. So Paul even talks about in 2 Corinthians that he spent a night and a day in the deep. So this could be referring to their, that shipwreck. Gets there, they're making a fire, and out of the wood, a poisonous asp bites him. And they're all going to go, ah, he's dead. Guess what? He didn't die. Oh, he must be God. Now they want to worship him. So Paul eventually gets to Rome. 
probably took from the time he left Caesarea to Rome five, six, seven months being shipwrecked, turmoil. I want to read to you, in the midst of all that, Paul tells, excuse me, God tells Paul. Let me see if I can find it in my notes here. I think I've, I've, I've gone past it. This is what Paul, God tells Paul. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Paul's passion is to get to Rome. He wanted a straight line. How did God get him there? Very securitous. But probably up to three years now from the time he landed in Jerusalem to now he arrives in Rome. And listen to this Acts 28, 14 and 15. There we found, so he's arriving, he's coming into the town outside of Rome. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them seven days. He's probably exhausted. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Apius and the three taverns to meet us. So those are locations outside of Rome. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. So imagine Paul's demeanor at this time. He had this desire to get into Jerusalem, give the offering to the saints, avoid the hostility from the unbelieving Jews, get back to Rome, Rome can send him to Spain. It's now up to three years later, he's finally dragging his tail into Rome, and he sees believers coming to him. It said Paul thanked God and took courage. He had prayed earlier, asked for us, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I would say he needed deep refreshing at this point. Did he ever get to Spain? According to the book of Acts, the book of Acts closes with the statement, Paul spent two years under house arrest. So two years in prison in Caesarea, whatever it takes to get there with the shipwreck, months and two years under house arrest in Rome. And the book of Acts ends. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us Paul got to Spain. The letter of First Clement in the first decade of the second century talks about Paul preaching the gospel in the far regions of the West. So this would be a person who came to faith um, a generation after Paul. So the tradition was Paul made it. So if I'll accept that tradition is true. Paul wanted this straight line and he got trouble all along the way. So did God answer Paul's prayers? Say again? In a unique way. And this is, this is a great lesson. That's why I spent so much time on this. This wasn't even what I was intending to do until I saw what was going on here and thinking through the book of Acts. That this is where the rubber meets the road in our faith. Do you have expectations of God? And that he doesn't meet your expectations. Now all of a sudden, what's wrong here, God? Is there a problem with me? Often, I think it used to be that way. Have I sinned and now you won't bless me, God? In our new world that we live in now, often it's, God, what's wrong with you? There's something wrong with you, God, that you don't answer my prayers. Don't you love me, God? I mean, if you have children, you know this. Children would believe, and maybe we've conditioned them for this, would believe that, you know what, the straightest line is no pain and ease and get to my goal. Mom and dad, get me there. 
And, and often we raise brats <laughs> because we remove from them. In fact, I remember, now I'm way off. I remember my oldest son was his mid-20s and he was not doing well. He walked away from the Lord. His behavior was poor. And I would rescue him constantly. I remember praying for him one night. And what I heard, and it's not often I, I have a strong sense God speaking to me. I, what I heard was, why are you rescuing Zach from the consequences I'm bringing into his life? And see, see God, God's got a goal for us, and that's to become like Jesus. And when we don't want that goal, we want something else. Remember that last couple weeks ago? If you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, what does he do? He exalts you. What happens if you don't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? What's the mighty hand of God going to do? Going to humble you. Paul, whatever he needed, God took him through a difficult time. His expectations were not met, but the end goal was met. Paul gets to Rome. He eventually stands before Nero. We don't have the record of it, but if Paul preached the gospel to Felix, the governor of Judea, and then the next governor, he preached the gospel to Festus, and then he preached it to King Agrippa, what do you think he did to Nero? He preached the gospel to him. If Paul got there, he did get there. And guess what happened about two, three years later? Nero kills Paul. So that was the end result of Paul's ministry, put to death by the king he most likely preached the gospel to. But in the end, what does it say? Paul thanked God and took courage by the brothers and sisters in Christ. So, our prayers. Teresa reads, um, he's passed now, Louis Palau, always read Louis Palau's blogs. And she told me about a thing he had on prayer. And so we found it yesterday or day before yesterday. I want you to watch this short thing on how Louis Palau, you know who Louis Palau is? Louis Palau is the Argentinian Billy Graham. Okay, that's what they call him. And here's what he says about answered prayer. Look at this. This is recorded prayer months before really he died. Prayer really can be boiled down to dialogue with God. When you pray, you're talking to God. And if you pray in the name of Jesus Christ, he will hear you. Now, he will answer your prayers every time, but he doesn't always answer the way we would like to. A friend of mine from Africa, he and I were teaching a conference, and I was teaching on prayer. And one day after my message, he came, you know, Luis, in Africa we say that God answers prayer four ways, and I added a fifth one. And this, here we go, it was very exciting. First, yes, the Lord says, I thought you'd never ask. And you know, a lot of us don't ask. Second, no. I love you too much. But he answers, but the answer is no, I love you too much. Thirdly, yes, but not yet. The other one is yes, and here's more. I like that one, where the Lord says yes. And then fifthly, yes, I added this one, but differently from what you thought. And I've experienced that, where God answers a prayer because my desires are such and such, but he answers it in a different way than I thought he would answer. So prayer, you learn to pray by being close to God. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, the Bible says. So when you pray, you're talking to God and you've got to do it on the basis of his revelation. So it's smart to read lots of the New Testament in particular. And then when you pray, you're asking according to the will of God. And when you do, he will always answer what's best for you, even though you don't know it at the time. 
So, in Paul had asked for that I come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ to you, that we strive together in prayer that I'm delivered from unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I suggest to you, the only one that wasn't answered was he was, he was not left alone by the unbelievers. He was brutally treated. But the rest of it happened. God answered it, but not in the way Paul prayed it. So let's not have unbiblical expectations in our prayers where then we get discouraged with God. Let's have an expectation that God is working in our lives to bring Christ-likeness to us. And some days it's smooth, other days it is horribly hard. But God is faithful in it all. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, this book of Romans. And so, Lord, today, whether it's proclaiming the gospel to those who don't know, taking care of the poor, or striving together as a group in prayer to you, Lord, work in our hearts, work in our minds, show us where we need to grow, show us where we need to understand who you are, maybe some false beliefs we have about you when it comes to prayer, as though you owe us something, but yet you abundantly give us all things. So thank you, Lord. We look forward to how you work in us today and every day this week. In Christ's name we give praise. Amen. We're going to take communion. And there's going to be servers up here when, they, when it's time to distribute the elements. And they'll hand you the elements. And we have the bread, which represents the body of Christ. I'm not supposed to touch it. It's supposed to hand it to me. <laughs> represents the body of Christ. We have unleavened bread here and we have... Um, gluten-free crackers, if that's important to you. Ask for them when you come up. Um, that bread represents the body of Christ. Christ became human like you and me. But one difference between him and us, he was just like you and me, fully human, except he never disobeyed his father. He was perfect. And this bread, the unleavened bread, represents his sinlessness. Then the cup represents his life. The life is in the blood. When the blood is shed, the life is gone. So Christ, the sinless Son of God, went to the cross and gave up his life so that we could have life. The irony of the gospel, through death comes life. If you're visiting today and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're welcome to the table. We practice open communion, meaning anyone who follows Jesus is welcome to take, partake of communion. If you need a few minutes to pray, we're going to play some background music. But when you're ready, come up, grab the elements, go sit back down, and we'll participate together in taking them. So if the ushers come forward.
This church believes in two, what we call ordinances or sacraments, different words used, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And traditionally, we see them as, as highly symbolic of representing the reality behind it. And sometimes we get kind of, because of repetition, it becomes mundane. Today I want to talk about Lord's Supper. Next week we're going to talk more about baptism in light of the, the baptism the following week. I want to bring Jesus' words to you today that are stark and um, difficult to understand so that we know what we're doing today in this communion represents the most important event that's ever happened in human history. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's not talking about the fact that I won't have hunger pains after I become a Christian. It's talking about much deeper. The idea that a yearning, and, and you guys can have a seat real good. I think we're done. I think. A yearning to experience the living God. And that once I do, I have this yearning to know God and I will experience him because of Jesus Christ and never hunger or thirst again for him because it's been fulfilled. It will grow, but there's a quenching once I come to know Jesus. That's the imagery there. He goes on. Some of the Jews didn't understand this in verse 52 of John 6. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Will that freak you out? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Jesus is not talking about cannibalism here, which was condemned by the law. But he's talking about a vivid experience that we understand what Christ did for us. And then we come and we grab a piece of bread and a, and, and a cup, whether juice or wine, whatever is your preference, here is juice. And we partake of that together, grasping, I'm eating that which gives life. In the Old Testament, they would sprinkle blood on the outside of people. Kind of a, a, a disgusting imagery to us. But, but Moses did this at the law. Slaughtered a bull, took the blood, and splashed it on the people. Book of Hebrews said that didn't change their life. Did not take away their sin. Jesus takes the bread and blood and tells us what to do with it. We eat it. We drink it. There's an internal change. Life is on the inside and it goes out. So this is complex. Read John 6. Talk to Jesus about what this means. But today I want us to experience our Savior by taking what's just bread and just juice and have an experience with him of a union with him that brings life. Father, we thank you for the bread. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body given for you. Do this remembrance of me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing that and recording it for us. Let's partake.
Likewise, the Gospel of Luke records he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink of it, drink it in remembrance of me. Father, help us to recognize this life. That through the death and burial and resurrection of your son, we are born again. We have life, victory over sin, purpose in the mundane things and the great things, Lord. All of that wrapped up into these symbols of the bread and the cup. So we thank you for this, Father, and we hope today you've been honored. And um, trust as we leave today after, after raising our voices to you again, that um, our commitment is to think about the lost around us as Paul had a passion and the poor. Christ's name we give praise. Amen. Would you stand with us as we continue in worship?
of your Sunday and we'll see you next week.